Well, good morning. If we have not met, I'm Shay Ryanga. I'm blessed to be one of the pastors here. I'm excited to be back with you. And to start us off this morning, I want us to see a, a certain image from sports. I felt like it might be borderline sacrilegious to enter into any football illustrations this morning because there was a lot of tight games yesterday and, and just don't, I just don't want to tread in that water um, this morning, <laughs> even though I'm pretty enthusiastic about one particular outcome of, of one game. Um, so what are we looking at? The switch, the switch. So uh, my dad was a baseball player and I, in my lifetime, I've seen something change in baseball, like a traditional switch. You'd see the, uh, the third baseman play more like where the shortstop is. So you'd have somebody to the left of second base in a traditional switch. So this is a pretty radical shift with the entire infield in between first and second base. So they're making a judgment about the batter. They're pretty confident, a pull hitter, left-handed probably. And they're so certain, and this is the sabermetrics era where it's, it's all math and science, and I'm not here to settle the debate um, for all the old school baseball folks that, that believe baseball is as much of an art as it is a science. You gotta show up, you gotta watch, Watch the players for tendencies to, to see how they respond in certain situations. It's not all numbers. It's not all high-level math. And all the people that bank on the high-level math are making some money these days because that's sort of trending in that direction. So obviously, this is a, an extreme shift, and they're making a judgment about the batter that we can't see, and they're so confident about the outcome that they're willing to leave half the field wide, wide open because it's predictable. They figured it out. Their math tells them, the, the formula says, like, what should happen is the ball should, if the ball gets hit at all, should go this direction. So they're ready for it. And, and I know in life for us, many of us live um, like life is predictable. And for a lot of us, it is. Like, if you could describe your day tomorrow, you could probably get pretty, pretty accurate on, on what your day is going to look like tomorrow. I mean, I, I count on certain things happening all the time. I count on, like, my car working so much so that I just leave stuff I probably shouldn't leave at the office. I leave snacks and my laptop and some, all kinds of things, Tupperware for days that I, I probably should remember to take home. But it's like, well, if I need it, if I, if I need something, I, I can get in the car, I can get back, my car is going to start. I'll get there. Like I can count on there's certain predictable things in my life. And in your life, we all, we all sort of have these routines and we, we can sort of believe life is predictable or we want to. We want an explanation for anything. We want to see the cause and the effect. We're, we're familiar is comfortable. Um, familiar feels good. I can count on Max being fussy when we pick him up from school because he doesn't like to wake up from nap time and, and pick up is right after nap time. So there are certain predictable things in our life that, that we can count on. They're counting on the ball going a particular direction. It's predictable. And so for those of you that haven't been with us the last few weeks, we've been in this sermon series called Story. And we've been talking about the powerful nature of our stories. And it's not because any one of us are particularly good storytellers. It's our stories are powerful and our stories are meaningful. They have their significance, we understand, because because we're involved in serving the kingdom of God and our story connects and becomes part of God's story. And because of that, even, even the parts of our story we're not proud of become transformed, become redeemed, become seamlessly part of this narrative that, that some people in our lives need to hear. 
And last week we met a man who was ill in John chapter five, who was healed, who was told to pick up his mat and walk. We saw that this man was healed and he moves forward into his story and the significance of his story and his ability to move forward was in him responding to Jesus to actually wanna be well and to get up and to move And so last week we talked about the significance and how we need to move forward in our story. Sometimes we get stuck. This week, I want us to focus on on this particular aspect of our story. We need to be the ones that own, name, and claim our story. You have the authority to speak for you and and to claim your story. And there's a danger in our lives um, if, if we can give that story away, if we let others influence us and sabotage our story. We, we're not the supporting role in our life. <laughs> and, and some of us live maybe more in a supporting role capacity than, than being the, the general chief spokesperson for us in our life. And so I want us to focus on that um, in particular because our passage today, we're going to see some folks that, that want to speak into someone's life and try to tell, tell them who they are. And we, we have to be on guard for that. So we're going to be in John chapter 9 this morning. We've been in, jo- in the gospel of John all throughout this, this sermon series. And we're going to see another healing today. So I want us to, in the back of our mind, remember last week we were in John 5 in that particular healing and how it's similar, dissimilar to, to this morning in John chapter 9 as we look th- read through this story of the man who was born blind. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. So as he went along as Jesus, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. So the disciples They ask Jesus this question where there's this fundamental assumption undergirding it, um, who's to blame? Who's to blame? Because there's got to be an explanation. Like there's a cause and effect, like life's predictable. We have to make sense of everything. There's this belief that this guy, um, for, for the moral evil, there's some sort of evil that must have happened for this man to have been born blind. So whose fault is it? And their assumption is, is that it's localized. It's localized. The problem must be either this man sins or his parents' sins. So there's got to be an explanation for the, for the evil in the world. We have to have an answer. There must be a simple answer for this. And so there's, there's been some text in Scripture that's behind maybe the disciples asking Jesus this question. If we look at Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7, and Ezekiel 18, 20, we see two different aspects of what we might call generational sin. 
So here's one of the passages about this in Exodus. Exodus 34, 6 to 7. Exodus chapter 20 speaks to this also, if you want to just make a note of that. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So there's passages, Exodus chapter 20 is another one. There's some more passages in the Old Testament that speak of what might, we might call generational sin. And it's a mystery. Like we're not given specific explanation as to how this sin is passed on to the children. I mean, we might hypothetically get into conversations of nature and nurture. And if this parent grow, raises their kids a particular way, then of course, naturally, they're going to grow up with the same habits and routines and sin that their parents struggled with. But it, we're not given an explicit explanation as to the nature and how necessarily the the children of the parents take on the same sin. But what is clear in some of these Old Testament passages in Exodus chapter 22 is that the children aren't innocent. It It is the guilty. It is the unrepentant ones that end up being punished. They aren't, they aren't, there isn't punishment for no reason. There isn't, there isn't. And so what sometimes is confusing about this idea of generational sin is sometimes we can read those passages and like this is a formulaic, scripted, predetermined, like these kids are bound and destined from the get-go. They have no hope because this mark is upon them. And yet that's not what scripture is saying here. These sins are still committed willingly by the children. And so even though there's these passages of generational sin, might be some of the reason the disciples are asking this question, like, hey, he's, got, he's blind, so parents, is it the parents or, or is it his? Because here's Ezekiel 18, 20. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. So you can see why there might be some confusion as to how this all works and the nature of this. You can see kind of the confusion maybe why the disciples are asking Jesus this particular question about the man born blind. And Jesus being the word in the beginning as we began with the gospel of John, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God who puts on flesh. Now we've already read that he's the light who has come into the world. So Jesus is here to set the record straight for us in his answer that it's neither, it's neither the parents nor this man's sins. We're not still given an explicit reason, but we're told this particular ailment, this infirmity is for God's glory to be seen. That it's so the works of God could be seen by others. We're not given a clear explanation of the problem of evil, this question of suffering in the world. We're not given a clear and concise, it's as if that's not really important here. It's this infirmity that so many people want to put on this man and accuse him of being responsible for the state that he's in. Jesus is saying, no, no, 
No, this is, this is all so the works of God can be seen by others. This infirmity is not your identity. In some ways, this man, this blind man who is blind from birth represents all of us in a way, in a sense, in that we're, we're all, we all need the light of Christ to see. We all can't understand our significance and our story unless we receive God's grace. We are all sinners fallen short of the grace of God. And even though we have fallen and sinned against God, he still chooses us to make us vessels of his grace and his mercy and his strength and his compassion in the world. He says this infirmity, your condition is not your identity. This sickness won't be unto death. The disease you've been dealing with will not define your life. The depression that sneaks up on you can be the very thing that God uses to show he's at work in your life. He can even use that to be a word of hope a word of redemption for someone else. What the world says is wrong with you. What the world says your problem is. The way others speak into your story and try to confuse who you are. Jesus is trying to set the record straight here. He's trying to help these people know, and it's where we gotta be careful, the kind of influence we allow into our lives, that our lives aren't as scripted as we think. They're not as predictable as we like to believe. Even though familiar's comfortable and feels good, our life's much more surprising and unpredictable. There's a lot going on beneath the surface and that we're, and we're accountable to the light that we have received and to share that light. Jesus is warning us and telling us, don't allow others to control the narrative of your life. Don't allow others to control the narrative. Because many will try. Many will try to control your story. And we have to be careful to speak up for ourselves. And like in the beginning, making Adam from dirt, making Adam from dirt and breathing life into him, Jesus, who was the word in the beginning, he spits on the ground, he makes this mud, and he puts it, he puts it over his eyes. So this is a process that's a little different than in John 5. John 5, he just says, pick up your mat and walk. And the guy picks up his mat and walks. Here is this process that he has to go through that's mysterious. We're not really, uh, you can read a lot of commentaries about this passage as people speculate about what this might mean. It's not clear what this process means, although it seems like what Jesus is doing, again, is he's, he's doing something that only God can do as he's been doing so far. And, and here clearly in this process, the line between commissioning and healing is blurred. They're working together this line, that this man is being healed to bring healing. He's being sent to deliver this word. He is healed to be sent and to share the story of the work of God this good news of the long-awaited Messiah who has come. And so there's this blurred nature with which this commissioning happens. Jesus, who is the one who is sent from God, is sending him to this pool that's called sent. And he goes home and he starts to encounter these other folks. These other folks now who have a lot to say about what just happened. 
and have a lot of questions about what allegedly just happened. And this is the part of our story. We have to be careful how much, we have to be careful not to give up the authority that we have of our own story because there's, there's people that we're about to encounter here that have a lot to say. His neighbors and those who had formally seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. I'm the man. How then are your eyes opened? They asked. He replied, the man they call Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought they brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had been blind. Now the day on which this, this had taken place, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him who, how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. So, so it's interesting. What, what, what's a little different is the, the man from last week, if you remember John chapter five, the, that guy could see. <laughs> that guy didn't have a problem seeing and he didn't know who Jesus was. Jesus slips away in the crowd. Here, this man is able to, to share that it, it is, in fact, Jesus. Even though he's blind, he knows it's Jesus. He's, he's been able to share that it's Jesus who has done this. And he meets this resistance. Again, for, for those of you um, that were in the sanctuary last week, you may have heard me say this, but again, he's getting in trouble because he's healing on the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath. And Jesus is always getting in trouble for for healing and doing work on the Sabbath because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. God creates the world in seven days and on the seventh day, God rested and being made in the image of God, we're made to rest. And so why is Jesus always working on the Sabbath? And, and I said, like many of us have, have frustration with getting adjusted to the time schedule, with adjusting the clocks back. And many of you probably a week later now have made that adjustment. Hopefully your sleep cycle is a little better from the adjustment that you've made um, to, to your life, we're finally starting to wake up on time. Finally, Max is starting to wake up on time. But see, what Jesus is doing here in the Gospel of John, and the Gospel of John, more than the other Gospels, makes, makes this point powerfully that there are these signs. There are seven signs. And those seven signs represent the seven days of creation, except now these are signs of new creation. And we are called to be that new creation. And last week was the third sign of the seven. And this week is the sixth sign of the seven. These, these clocks are changing. Jesus is springing forward to this new time that the Pharisees aren't aware of. They just, they just aren't aware of the time. They think they know because they're the experts of the law. It's their job to know. They're experts. And they think they know. And they've seen Messiahs come and go. And they think they know how the Messiah is supposed to go. And they're, they're confident that it's not this way. 
They're really sure that it's not this way. The Pharisees don't know what time it is. And they're living in this kind of knowledge that's dangerous. We often talk in leadership on our staff about knowing the things that you know. Knowing the things that you know. It's good to know the things that you don't know. That's good. It's good. So those two things are good. Knowing what you know and knowing what you don't know. What's dangerous is, is how much of your life is in that category of you don't know that you don't know. And that's what we got to get rid of. <laughs> that's, what, that's what we got to try to figure out how to deal with. Because if we live in that place, it's dangerous for us to live in that place. And here the Pharisees are living in this, in this false confidence. They think they know. They're really sure that they know. In fact, they're so sure. This is what they say about Jesus. They are determined that he can't be from God, is what they say. He can't be from God because, because he's doing this on the Sabbath. Even though, even though he's doing things, everyone acknowledges like no human can do what he just did. And he's been doing things. Word has spread. He's done things nobody can do that everybody acknowledges. Like even the people that are the most skeptical about Jesus, it's like they know he has an authority just by the way he speaks, let alone the miracles. It's like they know he's got to be from God. But see, these people who, who are supposed to know, they are living in this place where they don't know that they don't know. And it's dangerous because they're, they're making judgments that, that have eternal consequences. They're, they're saying, this man, this man not only isn't from God, but he's a sinner. Even though he's doing something that only God can do. Only God can heal. And yet they call him a sinner. That's the judgment that is being made. And so we have to be careful we have to be careful about giving our authority away and allowing others to speak into our story and determine our significance. We have to be the voice and name and claim who we belong to and why we, we do what we do, why we're here this morning because our stories are so powerful. And when we know like when we, we know why we're here and when it's all for God's glory and when it's all to lift the name of Jesus higher, when it's, when it's only for God, man, nobody can tell us who we belong to. No one can steer us off track when we have that confidence. We can withstand the kind of shade and the shadows that people want to try and cast on us in some vulnerable situations that we may get into. So then they turn again. They turn again to the man. They start asking this man directly again. Then they turned again to the blind man, what have you to say about him? So they're asking this man who's healed, what have you to say about him, Jesus? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he is our son, the parents answered. 
and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. I like to ask him. He's a grown man. Ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said he's of age, ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been born blind. They say, give glory to God by telling the truth. You're speaking before God now. Give him glory and tell the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. One thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. One thing I know, it's surprising, it's unpredictable, it's impossible. I mean, they, these folks already know. Like, and, and the truth of it is with our story, like as significant, as powerful as our stories is, you know, there's gonna be people that just won't believe. They won't listen. They only wanna listen to the extent of, of our, they only wanna listen to the extent that, that our story somehow benefits them in some way. There's just gonna be some folks that do not believe. These, these Jewish rulers, these Pharisees, they've already decided, they already know, they've already decided who this man is, this man that was born blind, this, this man by the name of Jesus. And they've heard the claims, they've already decided. And this passage highlights for us again that there's no correlation between maturing physically and spiritual maturity. There's no correlation about just growing up and spiritual maturity. We see that these men, they've already decided, they've already determined the story of this guy and they've determined that all the claims are false. Meanwhile, this man who's born blind, he's, asked, he's been asked to do a lot. They've invaded his space. They've obstructed his life and he's been faithful. He's been patient. He's been confident in Jesus. He's been confident about the one thing that he knows. And he is confident and sure and not gonna be ashamed to tell that story. And I think for many of us, when, we, when we're in this sermon series talking about sharing our story, we, we get maybe a little bit overwhelmed about trying to figure out like how to share our autobiography and our whole story. And we don't have that much time with people and no one wants to hear that anyway. And that just doesn't come about all that easy. But it's, it's this one thing. Notice with this man, it's, what's he sure of? He's sure of one thing. He's not sure about a lot of things. His life's been routine and predictable too. But one thing, one thing he knows, he was blind and now he sees. And many of us have experienced at least one thing. Like there's been one thing that we've learned that God has taught us that, that we can't explain it any other way. There's been, there's been a truth that we know. There's been something that's happened to us. There's been something that we've been given that we can't explain other than the grace and the mercy and the power of Almighty God. So what's that one thing? What's the one thing? And start there in telling your story. Who needs to hear that one thing that you know? It's tough. It's tough to have answers to a lot of things. Like life's tough. 
pain and suffering and, and we struggle. We live through seasons where we, we often just wish and we cry out to God. We want the answers to the question and, and the answers just don't come. But there's one thing I do know. And I think there's one thing you know about the grace of God and about the goodness of God. And it's that one thing that we can start to tell our story with that one thing. What's that one thing for you? What's that one thing that you know to be true? Because I know this sanctuary represents a lot of powerful stories where seasons of mourning, you can't, it's unpredictable, it's surprising, you can't hardly explain it, but there have been moments of grace in, in mourning in seasons of lament, and some of the afflictions that you've received that still plague your life to this day, and some of those afflictions are affirmations of God's faithfulness. I know there are. I've heard them. Throughout this story sermon series, it's been amazing to hear some of your stories. We all have powerful stories. And what's at stake? Who, who might not receive a word of hope? Who might not receive a word of grace if you don't, if you don't share that one thing? if you don't share that one thing, because I know in some of your wounds, there have been words of wonder and praise and healing in the midst of wounds in your life. I know there's hurt in this sanctuary that has turned into healing. And so I'm excited for us to continue to share our story. We're gonna hear a powerful story next week from Dr. V. And I wanna close with with this story from our church family, the Hanlon family. If you don't know the Hanlon family, um, their, their children were baptized not too long ago here at First Methodist. And I just, I want you to hear this story because again, they don't really, they were like in the same boat. It's like, what, where do we start? How do we share? Like what's, it seems just such a daunting thing to explain a story, our, your, your whole life story to someone. And here they had the courage to share a little bit of their story and the, the redemption and the, the miracle of their children and their family and how that all came to be. And so I hope you feel encouraged to share your story and to tell someone about that one thing that God has done to your life. Let's watch the Hanlon story. We had Mariah, and then two years later, we had Elijah. So in 2008, um, I had a two-year-old and a six-week-old, and Brad came home on Valentine's Day and said he was going to Iraq. I got off of active duty shortly after returning and uh, started the search for a, a new career and a way to provide for my family. I was a case manager for people with disabilities and that kind of opened our eyes to the foster system. Vanessa and I would talk early on about adoption and uh, we were actually sitting here in church and heard somebody's testimony. She spoke to the exact kind of hurdle that we'd placed between ourselves and fostering, which was, we'll, we'll wait until the kids are older. In that moment, we just sort of looked at each other and we were like, we're waiting for nothing. Our goal when we started this journey was to foster to adopt a 10, 11 year old boy. We, we couldn't put our own children through the heartache of forming those bonds and relationships with children and then them being ripped from our home. The agency had been looking for a placement for us, and then all of a sudden I started getting children and sibling groups. And I, I was like, I, I didn't request 
sibling groups. I don't have room for more than one child. We have one bedroom. Vanessa called me. She said, hold your judgment and just read through it. Tell me what you think. For whatever reason, it spoke to me. It just felt right. So on November 3rd, we took in Corey, Julian, and Jeremiah. On the first day, Corey said, are you my mom? And I said, yeah, I am your mom. And he said, are you happy? And I said, yes, I am so happy. And he said, okay, I'm gonna draw a smiley face. From that moment on, I was like, Brad, they're not going anywhere. Yeah. They're ours. Yeah. <laughs> Everything kind of seemed to be perfect. Everybody was, was happy. Three weeks after the boys came to live with us, uh, I was diagnosed with cancer. It made me question our decision and question what we do from this point through it. And the thought of losing Brad in this fight um, scared the crap out of me. It, it incapacitated me to a level that I just, I did not see coming. Uh, what was going through my mind was just, I didn't want to give up on these boys and the thing that we had committed to. We can't be the next point of failure in these boys' lives. It helped with us coming together at the end of the day and thinking about those things that we can do in their future. Just got to get through this small piece of their life. Um, Having a vision of, of what the future looked like with them was, was constant motivation. Ultimately, I think it sped my recovery because I had to be involved and I had to be engaged with these three boys. In sickness and in health, in cancer, in autism, in spelling bees, in honor rolls, and in the thick of the stomach flu, I am not going to walk away. Their stories that we heard during a church service were instrumental in us making this move. I hope and pray that people seeing our story can look and say, well, if the Hamlins can do it, and through Brad's cancer, then maybe I can do it too. Take action, uh, make the move. It doesn't have to be fostering or adopting three boys. It doesn't have to be any particular thing that we've done. Involve your family. Don't, don't think that you have to do these things around your children. Do them with your children. Jeremiah Paul, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. That was a big smile. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? Don't give the authority God has given you to tell your story away. Will you pray with me? Holy God, we are not who others say we are. We are who you say we are. And may our lives, may our words, may our stories reflect who you say we are. That we are made in your image, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That you have given us authority to share with others how you have made a difference in our life. You've made all things new for us. Even in the struggle, even in the battles, even in the pain, God, you have been good. You are faithful. Give us the courage 
to share the story that you've given us. And let us speak for ourselves, speak about the truth that you've given us, the light that you have given us. And may we never give that away. May we never compromise that so that we wear our true face until we see yours. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.